Welcome to The Truth in This Art Beyond, and we are back in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. I am your host, Rob Lee. Thanks for listening. And I'm excited today to be in conversation with my next guest, a serial entrepreneur, a founding partner, and chief strategist at the Growth Collective, a partnership with the vision to provide access to resources and capital that will elevate communities of color and generate wealth for neighborhoods victimized by systemic racism. Please welcome Taib Smith. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for asking me to join. Um, and, and before we get into the sort of uh, main theme of today's conversation, I want to give you the space to like, you know, share your background and perhaps some of those like early experiences that might show up in your work today. And I and I think is something interesting in that, right? Where, mm-hmm. you know, oftentimes people are like, I'm not doing anything that's connected to what I experienced growing up. And I look at when I used to get in trouble <laughs> for I did a mural when I was a kid. And you see I'm the spectacle, such as yourself. Mm-hmm. And I got paint on my glasses and mm-hmm. I got into so much trouble. And I was like, I'm not going to be an artist. I'm going to be around the artists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at different times in, in your journey, you probably answer um, the same question in different ways. And I would say where I am today at 52, um, you know, some of the formidable experiences that I think define or have influenced my work. Um, one of both my parents um, being, you know, progressive people, people in the, in the Black nationalist movement, people who were, um, you know, most of the things in our household would have fallen under the description of the Black arts movement. Um, so whether that's jazz musicians, poets, activists, um, hustlers, you know, just just people who were trying to find some form of liberation um, in their work, in their activities, even even in their dress, you know, how they wore, wore their hair. So, you know, controversies before I was five was like, you know, my both my parents naming me Taib Ben Abdul Malik El Bazir Smith in like 1971. You know, my I have an, um, a cousin in North Philadelphia. And she says, oh, you was the first child with one of those, with those African names. Like, she was like, there was nobody before you, <laughs> um, at least in my world, right? So, um, you know, contemporarily, I live a very, you know, progressive, diverse life. But, like, I think retrospectively, even me being involved in real estate or, you know, going through a bunch of endeavors, like creating, a, a you know, an art project around the history of redlining. Um, I, you know, being a, a board member at the Black Star Film Festival, um, being in a in a partnership with the investment group looking for ways to develop, you know, holistic community development models. You know, I could take that back to being on a, you know, looking for an apartment with my mom and her, her cursing out the realtors, you know, basically being like, motherfucker, I asked you for this neighborhood. Why are you taking me over here? And in that, you know, her saying something about redlining and me being like, what's redlining? Yeah. Right? So like some 30, 40 years later, it's it's those formidable memories that kind of define like your worldview. I, you know, I also have a really good friend, um, Dante Neal, who's an artist in Philadelphia and, you know, he said to me one time, he was like, you don't even know 
And I'm like, what do you mean? And, you know, he was describing to me that like my formable years were so progressive. So, you know, in a language of black liberation that he's like, you don't you don't even know that other people didn't have that perspective. Right. Or I one of my form, formable memories um, is asking my dad where white people came from and him taking me to the fridge and pointing to Europe. Right. Like, I remember that. Yeah. And, you know, that's a that's like a funny narrative, because how many black children who ha have like such, you know, like I have posters with Idi Amin, do you know what I mean? like I like or like all of the, um, you know, anti-colonialist leaders in Africa. Like those were like my formidable images with black G.I. Joe figures like these. Those are like very young you know, things. But when I talk to some of my friends who didn't have that perspective, um, it makes me see that that's a part of my fortune, you know? Yeah. Um, and then another, you know, kind of dissonant chord in relation to that, sure. those formable experiences when I went outside of my parents' ecosystem or community, it, you have to fight the constant in, in indoctrination of our education systems, our business systems, our systems that teach us about history. Mm -hmm. So there's an element, you know, as children, where you become defiant of your home, you know, images. So like one of my rebellions when I was 18, yeah, um, I joined the Navy without telling anybody in my family. And, you know, I just came home, started telling people. And it was like, you did what? You know, and like retrospectively, that was me trying to be independent. That was me buying into a certain level of propaganda about, you know, like what a young man does. Yeah. Uh, but that was rebellion. You know what I mean? Then I had to had to go into that experience and have all those formative, you know, experiences be like, wait, what? What are we doing in Panama? Oh man, <laughs> some colonialism. You know what I mean, right, man? <laughs> I mean, you 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 briefly mentioned GI Joe, and I couldn't help but think of a black shipwreck for some reason. <laughs> Just, I'm in the Navy now. It's like, where did that hat come from? You know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. And, and, and thank you for it, because we're definitely going to be tapping in on a few other things. And I think this definitely really helps sort of set the stage. So, you know, talk about like when you started moving in like the direction of this is what I want to do with with my life. I see, you know, different like sort of cross sections that ultimately connect with black folks. You know, whether it be, you know, the the hip the Institute of Hip Hop Entrepreneurship, whether it be, you know, the collective, which we'll definitely talk about much more later. But talk about talk about that a little bit. And to give you a, a moment to kind of ruminate on that, I'll, I'll throw this out there. Um, so I'm a huge black dude, you know, just that's just my, my 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 setup. And I'm a very smiley individual, especially when I get into a conversation, as you've probably noticed so far. And you'd be surprised. You hear some of the weirdest things I hear from some folks who might look like me that I'm not black enough. And I hear from some folks who are white who will say I'm militant. And it's like, I'm just me. Mm -hmm. It's like, how am I both? And it's like, oh, maybe the subject matter, maybe the lens in which I'm doing these interviews. But mm -hmm. it's very, it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> So black or white, when people say someone's not black enough, like 
you know, I definitely think we have to evolve past tropes mm-hmm. of uh, people pleasing other people's identity with blackness. And I, I would say, you know, throughout the diaspora, there are probably different versions of how white supremacy, you know, will put, uh, uh, I'll say, a, uh, a white face on your identity when you're just living through your lived experience. Right. Um, so I would say personally, like, I feel fortunate that I, I was raised by a mother in particular that didn't put any constraints on my my ideas of what Blackness uh, can encompass. Um, and I think that's a constant, you know, fight that we have to exist in to, you know, evolve beyond tropes, yeah. beyond, evolve beyond kind of minimizing perspectives on what um, what we in, inhibit or inhabit, you know, in the past, present or future. Yeah, that's 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 wonderful. And it like I, I did a and to kind of combat some of that, because I I didn't come, you know, live in that sort of dynamic. It's just like you be you you know, whatever that might be. And I did it for a while. And I'm, and I'm thinking about bringing it back. I did a podcast for a while called just like unofficially black. And it was this, this sort of, um, you know, how you have like the barbershop podcast now, and it's way too many of those, but it was just kind of like, Hey, we both had the same thing, um, of you're not black enough. Cause we had the, me and my buddy, my co-host at the time, uh, we were talking about, um, traveling to, uh, we joked about it, but we were talking about traveling to LA and it's like, oh, you're going to like, you know, watch some like rap concert or whatever the, the thing the du jour would be. And I was like, nah, we're going to watch sweaty Asian men like Russell if we <laughs> watching Japanese pro wrestling. And it's like, black people don't do that. And I was like, but we, we, we're the things, we're, we're the guys. So we recover like the news, but from that perspective of kind of like not being black enough, but talk about whatever is right there on our radars. That's what we were doing. You just gave me a flashback of like early afropunk when james spooner first started it and it like even the first documentary that he created around afropunk it was it was really about like all of the black people in different you know progressive arts music yeah. uh visual arts spaces who where their blackness was questioned and ironically it evolved into like this you know cosmopolitan black blacker than thou uh uh perspective um that's interesting interesting. i I had had the opportunity to interview james i I met him uh last year um and it was it was great and i think in in speaking with him and looking at you know watching the documentary on on youtube and um i just started looking at it i was like i want to do this you know Mm -hmm. from like because i joked him i was like so 20 years later we doing this (laughs) this is like nah (laughs) Well, he got he bowed out in the in the early uh, mid aughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it, like many things, it grew to have a, a life of its own. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. So, were were there like some stops like along the way when you were like, 
you know, I know that the, this is where I want to focus my energy at. This is where I can do the most good. Like you, you touched on earlier with real estate and we were touching on a little bit about the um, Institute of Hip Hop Entrepreneurship and many, many, many other stocks. Cause like my internet searches earlier <laughs> and put it in your name. I was like, the students everywhere. Wow. You know what, man? That what, one, thank you for that too. Um, I'm fortunate that I have like, um, like this deep curiosity that keeps me on different journeys. Um, when you say doing good, um, I'm just, you know, I've just been a, a hand to mouth entrepreneur who's trying to survive and like do things um, to in some way, either contribute or pay respect to the people who helped me get here. You know, even the ones who are, I might not even know their names, you know what I mean? Like we all stand on the shoulders of others. Um, so, I don't really th like see myself in the in like the do-gooder space. I see myself as like a curious entrepreneur who just keeps trying things. So, you know, I had one experience with this uh, one of the fellows from the Institute of Hip Hop Entrepreneurship. One time, he wanted to do something. It was like some type of business around coffee, and my co-working space is right across the street from La Cologne, and uh, you know, at Fifteenth Street. And I was like. Well, I know, you know, I know the owner and like, I know some people work there. Let me figure out and we can talk and you can go over there and you can work there. And he also saw himself as someone who was like a thing, an artist, you know, like a, a brand. And he was like, ah, but I don't really see myself like working in coffee. And I got so upset. I wanted to shake him. And I started talking to him like, why do you think you you know, how come we can only see ourselves performing or being the talent or being on a field in, in some um, way? And when I was cursing him out, I started thinking about myself. And I started thinking about my first, um, you know, not that I, I ever, you know, outside of being a little kid, but like once I was like a teenager on through my 20s, like my relationship with entertainment was supporting other people. But I, I, in me cursing him out, I realized that I was like, oh shit, I'm talking to myself, right? Because, you know, my first ideas of what it meant to be a business, you know, a hustler, a businessman, an entrepreneur was through the things that I saw, yeah. right? And, you know, we have such a limited palette that black men in particular are given in terms of um, possibilities. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I've I've had the experience of talking to high school students or middle school students, and the questions I get back from them scare me. Yeah. Right. And if you know, I had one day I might have talked to seventy five kids over the course of four hours, and like they couldn't name seven careers. Right. They they could only name like ball player, you know, social media, uh, you know, like. So, some type of performer. And um, although I I had a journey through entertainment, I, it really scares me that we don't give more pathways to people affecting like the built environment, our civic infrastructure, like the future of work in general. Yeah. Um, so again, you know, like that's a, you know, that that's a, a complication that, um, 
really concerns me. And even in the Institute of Hip Hop Entrepreneurship, like we won that grant. It was a $300,000 grant from the Knight Foundation, and it came from a National Challenge uh, Award. So 4,500 people submitted ideas. There was probably 150 finalists, and then there were 38 ideas uh, funded, and that was one of them. So it enabled us to work with 24 fellows over nine months, and three people got um, $10,000 to start their business. Now, in that experience, I learned so much yeah. about myself, about those young people, about the contemporary work environment. But one thing that is challenging, um, we have a narrative about Black business ownership and entrepreneur that is strictly through the lens of exceptionalism. All right. So even in our you know, respectfully, like earn your leisure type podcast environment or like the LLC entrepreneurship, Instagram, uh, the person selling classes and stuff like that, mm -hmm. even the things that we reference, they're like moonshots, you know, yeah. like, you know, I don't want to hear you talking about uh, like, don't give me Jay-Z quotes when you can't hire three people. Right. I mean, or, you know, you're a small business if you make less than $10 million a year annually. You know, I live in a city where 2.3% of the businesses are black owned, but we make up 40% of the population. Of that 2.3%, there's a minuscule number of people who are doing more than a million dollars a year in revenue. So <laughs> the conversation about business and the intergenerational structural racism that has removed us from equity um, to to have investment in businesses. Um, the, the, a lot of the narratives around entrepreneurship and small business have been weaponized against us in yeah. a way that is really complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's funny, like, you mentioned the exceptionalism thing and that's, you know, I've run into it in, in doing this and doing it as long as I have. And it's almost this sort of, if I reach out to someone, I don't lead with what my background is, what my criteria is. It's like, when I throw out there, I've been doing this for 14 years. I don't know if I need to audition, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? And now I joke about it. I was like, yeah, some of those opportunities don't float over. So if I do an interview with someone from Philly, oh, you're leaving Baltimore, you're you're doing this other thing. And it's kind of like, you know, you're you're selling out. It's kind of that the echo of that. And yeah. it's like, I kind of can do what I want. You know, when you start speaking in terms of like what almost feels like, I guess what I would deem as this is me being free, not being beholden to anyone and kind of setting like this is what I find interesting. And the thing that you said earlier, being curious. That's that's the thing that kind of drives me. That's the thing that guides me. So I'm, I, you know, I'm I'm quick with <laughs> ideas, but like when I hear you talk about like you're doing something in Philly, you're leaving us, like that comes from a scarcity mindset. That comes from our, like our traumas. You know, Philadelphia is a city. To be frank, most of the people who Philadelphia is a part of their brand, they do not have a two a, like a two one five number, or if they do, they hold it on one since the nineties. <laughs> and not have a 215 zip code. They're not paying municipal taxes. They are not voting here. Uh, and that, that's from like 
publishing to brand to you know social media person like you know then they, they don't live walking distance to city hall like me right so um <laughs> I, so i've i and i and i i have experienced multiple generations of in like an intellectual vacuum of mm. people moving to larger cities um for opportunity right and i understand i understand it and i hold a lot of uh empathy for for how just the, the black condition is one of uh almost being nomads you know what I mean? Like how, yeah, you know, how many of us in contemporary cities that were redlined, that did go through a crack up, you know, Holocaust, um, that have been um, left over since white flight, can afford to move back to the neighborhoods where our parents, aunts, and uncles, like fought just to keep alive. After we move to a New York or Miami or an LA or you know or London wherever, right? Um, so when you said that, I was like, I just started thinking like, we need to have better dialogue between Baltimore, Philadelphia, Newark, New York. Like, we should be jumping on Amtrak's and talking about like they doing that to you. This is what our city hall is doing to us. That's what your state those state representatives are doing to you. This is how they play us. Um, so I don't, you know, I I used to be like Philly, 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 <laughs> and I still live here. But I had experience years ago um, looking at displacement issues in multiple cities, particularly Chicago, Detroit, uh, Miami, and when I really got to spend time in some other spaces, I got to see how the same policies were executed on us, how we reacted to them differently. Mm -hmm. right? Oh, that's what that's that's what they did to the West Side. Oh, that's what that happened on 52nd Street. You know? Yeah. So I I encourage people. I I I you know, I would really love to explore ways that erstwhile chocolate cities could have spaces where we had a media and a public policy network and a, like a social, political, economic action network um, to share ideas, resources, and opportunities versus thinking of people, you know, selling out. 100%. Um, I, whenever that question comes up and where it's presented to me, like, I, I always come from a position of, I know I know stuff, but I'll say like, I don't know anything, but, and then just drop like a truth bomb or what have you. Mm -hmm. Like I, I kind of talk about it in, in Baltimore. It's like, you guys see these changes. I was like, we're trying to ape what DC does. And DZ, DC definitely has these sort of vibes of no one really lives there. You know, people kind of just like pass through there. Mm. And I was like, mm, I was like, I see like, really substantial change like i remember in philly when going up there because i'll go up there to wreck philly do the interviews up there and i remember i like didn't come up there for a month it was like december and i was like eh, it's cold i'm not going up there and i just remember it was like yo i walk the same path each time from 30th street why is it different suddenly and mm. then thinking back i was like i was up here a couple years ago none of this was here mm -hmm. i see that sort of similar change and similar energy around baltimore I'm like, you guys need to be looking at what's happening in Philly, as you were touching on. And I was like, because that's like a year, two years ahead of what we're doing here. 
Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I got one last question before I, before we start talking about the collective a bit. Um, and I, and I kind of touched on it a little bit, um, you know, as far as like curiosity being a, a driver for me, it, um, I, I, we always hear about North stars. We always hear about what guides sort of whatever our work might be. Do you, do you have like, I, I like to look at it as truth, you know, like the truth in his art, you know, patent pending or what have you or trademark, but what would you say are like those tr three truths that kind of guide you in what you're doing? Is it curiosity in there? Is it like an empowerment and support of like black folk or what have you? Talk talk about that a little bit. So uh, I, you know, I'm going to throw curiosity in one. Um, I'm going to keep it real and say that it's been fear of poverty. Do you know what I mean? Like um, I've experienced poverty. I come from people who who experience, you know. Mm -hmm. I come from sharecroppers, you know, like I'm a great grandkid of the great migration. Mm. Um, those have been uh, two really important drivers. And, you know, I wouldn't know how to frame it. And I, in this moment, I can't think of the right adjective, but, you know, just the care and dedication that came from the energy of my parents and the, the people who influenced my parents. You know, my dad's 76 now, he'll be 77 Sunday. My mom passed away in 2009. Um, and, you know, they were extraordinary. They are extraordinary and, and special people. And oftentimes, um, regular folk, ordinary people are not thought of when we, we think of um, like the real change. And I'm fortunate enough that I'm, I'm old enough, you know, Mark Anthony Neal has a book called Soul Babies. Um, I highly recommend it if you've never read it. But in it, when I read it 20 years ago, I was like, oh, this is me. <laughs> oh, I even, this, is what the, this is what we are. And, you know, I was born three years after the 68 uprisings. I was born, you know, after the Harvard study of the soul environment, when they figured out that there was a middle-class black marketplace. Um, I grew up with, you know, positive black images, whether it was George Jefferson or, you know, that just, just an ecosystem that I didn't know was designed to get us to purchase. But, you know, I also grew up in an age where people went to city hall or went to Harrisburg and they talked about black power. Um, and I, I didn't know until, you know, kind of looking at Mark's work that we were, we were punched in the gut and the face by the crack cocaine 80s, right? So you, you grow up with this one, like, perspective, and you're hit with this, like, Reaganomics reality. Yeah. I feel, I feel like um, the juxtaposition between those two, rea two realities uh, kind of forged my social political identity. So part of, part of that is like, you could call it Afrofuturism. And then the second part is like just pragmatic, like, oh, this, this is this, they bring in the dark star. Oh, this, this, <laughs> this is what we deal with. Oh, okay, I got to change it up. <laughs> Every now and again, when, when someone does the thing of like, 
All right. So what's your perspective on things? So it's like, look, I was born in 1985. <laughs> I was like, so there's some weird, weird, prominent things that happened there in the black community. And I was like, it's kind of baked in. It's been looking at like maybe how the household setup was and, and things of that nature, living in the projects, all of that different stuff. Mm-hmm. And just like my parents were very aware of what was happening during that time. We, we were talking crack. We we're talking, we we're talking, you know, AIDS, we're talking all of these different things. And my dad's a veteran. So you always, you have that as well. Those mm-hmm. things like are baked into like, yeah, how was it growing up? Not bad. And then mm-hmm. when you become an adult, like, Oh, that's what was happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just to speak about that being an adolescence of the crack cocaine, 80s like it makes me really curious you know the children who are living through the opioid epidemic like how that will frame their futures yeah mm-hmm. you know. things are cyclical they just come back in different just a different shade of paint just you know slightly different color yeah yeah so i, I want to switch gears a touch and but i, I still think it, it it connects to the overall theme here um, so I got three questions. This is like the chunk, the three question chunk. Um, tell us about the collective. I mean, just for, for those who are who are undipped, unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. So the, the growth collective, which we've evolved into, um, is set up as two companies, one being a fee for service consultancy, and the other is actually a, an investment group. There are seven black owned real estate companies that are our primary members and clients. And then my partner, Sandra Dungey-Glenn and Stephen Saunders. Sandra coming from more of a political um, consulting perspective. And she used to work with Shaka Vitaj. She worked with Senator Hughes, um, both Pennsylvania um, state representatives and senators. Um, But she comes from a different era of political engagement. And Steve and I like to, teaser and say we brought it to capitalism. Uh, Stephen is uh, a pension fund manager. Uh, he has another company called Beltree Capital. He's uh, raised much more money than I could ever imagine in his lifetime. And years ago, pre-COVID, um, probably like 2017, 18, Sandra and I had first met. And then when the Opportunity Zone policy um, was rolling out, we went on this journey talking to political representatives, you know, stakeholders, people at site control, investors, uh, because the language of the policy didn't connect with the reality of the policy. All right. So we were shocked and awed to talk to, frankly, some representatives who represent, you know, black constituents who did not read the policy and didn't understand it. And, you know, we're speaking about guardrails that we um, were aware didn't exist. So in that endeavor, um, we gathered probably around nine different real estate practitioners, um, primarily real estate developers, and realized that we had more in common. And some of the institutions, lenders, bankers, and investors had different narratives for us. We also learned that someone who's doing a $5 million deal doesn't have the same problems as someone who's doing a $50 million deal. So the person who's doing a $50 million deal doesn't want to necessarily hang out around the $5 million deal person, but there's there's a shared possibility and the alliance and the exchange of information. So that's kind of how we came to be the collective. And currently 
one of our clients is Achievability, which is a nonprofit um, based in West Philadelphia. Then we're consulting on helping them figure out what to do with their nine parcels of land to have a positive impact on the community that's there. Um, so long story short, we like to say that we focus on holistic real estate development with the lens towards, you know, repair to Black communities that have traditionally been divested from. Thank you. That's great. I, I, I saw it as both. And I was like, I had it in there and in each bullet point. I was like, growth collective, growth collective. And I was like, no, nah, it's just a collective, right? And I was like, which one is it? <laughs> yeah. Um, in slang, we say the collective, but, and uh, let's say to the IRS, we were, we were the growth collective squared. <laughs> that's, that's a great answer to that. Um, so I got, I got these two last, like, like real questions here. Like, and like obviously like you're, you're very like I, I was following the 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 twitter a little bit and i was like hey, this is a this is a really smart dude i was like i don't know if i'm qualified for this and uh just, just, but what are what are in in your opinion and in, in kind of like you know where your focus is at what are some of the effective ways to like share information and resources to like you know the communities in which you're you're, you're speaking to like how how do you go about it because I, I look at it like i look at it like this um, I had this conversation with someone from a grant perspective, like grants for artists. And um, and it was, um, what is it? Art administrators of color. And it mentioned, the person I was talking to, they mentioned like, yeah, a lot of these grants are written weird. And it's just like, they're intentionally like vague or intentionally something that's confusing that you're going to waste time on. And you're too busy. It's like not knowing who your audience is. So so talk about that a little bit. That's just the example that comes to mind. Mm. So I'll go back to my earlier comment of how you would answer questions differently at different stages. And, you know, I've, I've had the good fortune of um, winning multiple National Challenge Awards for the Knight Foundation. Um, my other company won a Pew Arts and Heritage uh, Award to do a project around the Seventh Ward, which is, you know, one of the oldest Black uh, communities in the country where WD Boys came to study. Um, and I had almost like a Forrest Gump education on philanthropy. And that, that came from individuals who, you know, I were, was fortunate enough to receive their mentorship or they might just might, you know, believe enough in me to invite me to the right things that my hard headed ass just kept asking difficult questions. And then I understood what the nomenclature and the language is, right? So... I say that to say that, you know, you referenced, you, you started referencing Twitter, right? And Twitter today is not the Twitter of like 2008, 2009, 2010, which frankly is similar to the internet experience um, in general, that like, it's just not as robust. It's not as like engaged, authentic, fulfilling. You know, I can remember actually connecting with people in multiple cities and having like thoughtful engagement, people turning me on to things, and it wasn't like combative or ironic or just sharing things um, that aren't intellectually stimulating. Mm, yeah. right? So th th there's an aspect of the platform economy that for me, you don't really know who, you know, I share things I find of interest, right, on, on the platform, but you don't know who you're actually, who it's hitting with, right? right? That's almost just like putting something out there, like putting little notes and bottles and throw them in the Pacific Ocean. Like you don't know, somebody might get it, somebody might not. But to actually get like 
the cheat code, the information, the person to say like, don't do it that way. I can save you three years, all right? Um, nobody ever says that, but their actions might actually save you three years, right? right? Um, I really believe in and I'm reacquainted with how much we have to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people and how much we have to like create networks of nurturing like intellectual thought yeah. or you know I, i'm a big believer in intergenerational community all right so i have two two colleagues that are in their 70s that you know i talk to frequently um but they're very successful people who have like more energy than me at 50 and people who are you know 20 and 30 years younger than me yeah. so I, I i reap the benefits of just that type of, of knowledge and i've always you know not always probably since my 30s i've um made an effort to nurture relationships with people who are younger than me and i don't think mentorship should ever be a one-way street all right so in in mentorship there's something that the energy for me should be reciprocal, right? Like whether it's inspiration, turning me on to something I wouldn't be aware of, translating something for me, like, and it, it, it might just be the how Gen X has received boomer love, but <laughs> I'm not I'm not the mentor who, you know, I might in, ingest, you know, teas or uh, as we say, some people, some people, but uh, you know, it's more of peer energy yeah. that and you know talking down to people or you know um quick thought so there's a, there's a type of old head who will say you gotta come sit at my knee and i and on my day i did this this and this and they don't even know the kids eyes are rolled back in their head because they don't even understand like the contextualization right. but I, I had he's not we're only a year a couple of years apart but I had this experience with Theester Gates, who's an artist in Chicago years ago. And he, he's heard me tell the story and he laughs because he, he didn't remember it. But I was on a bus trip with him and all these philanthropists and they were showing all his properties in Chicago. And I had met him a couple, maybe like three or four years earlier and he didn't have as many things going on. And I, I came to him on the bus and I was like, Theester, how did you get your business acumen up to the point you're doing all this? And he looked at me and he looked both ways to see if anybody was, was listening. And he said, I don't have the business acumen that you or anyone else believes. But if you see something I'm doing right that you can copy or you can approve on, do it. And don't even call me and ask me. Just say I support you. All right. That was such a freeing moment for me because, you know, as a black man, how many people you might come to for advice, a positive word, an autograph, a shout out. Please listen to my demo who and they will show you their ass. Right? This is true. But here here was, you know, someone who was on their trajectory upward, who was being authentic to me, almost like we were in the Underground Rail Railroad, like, look. This ain't what you think. I'm trying to hustle too. I'm just trying to figure it out like you. It might be working, but you you too can be free. <laughs> that's, that's great. <laughs> um, 
so I, I got I got one last real question. Um, and then I have like four rapid fire questions. Okay. So the last real one goes is this. I just, I just want to get a sense on, you know, we, we're talking trajectory a little bit um, there towards the end. Um, looking towards the future, what are what are some of the goals and priorities for the Growth Collective? And um, how do you envision like the organization like moving forward and evolving um, over the next, let's say, three to five years? Oh, great question. So we're in dialogue with some financial institutions that I, you know, probably should shouldn't mention about using some new regenerative investment um, vehicles to actually put dollars, equity dollars, into black um, real estate developers' projects. Um, I think we've done a great job of um, elevating issues that have been there for a long time within our our local municipal state you know, ecosystem. Um, I'd say in the tradition of, of Black progress, um, it's always challenging because the facts are there. Yeah. Right? Like the figures are there. The lawsuits about the divestment in communities go back, you know, longer than me at 52. Um, the number of gaslighting excuses or reasons not to invest in black and brown people are infinite. Um, so we keep doing the work, we keep struggling, we keep, you know, making wins and trying to influence not just the public policy, but the projects where we can. Thank you. That's, that's great. Uh, essentially, I love to hear it. <laughs> so as, as we wind up in these, these, these final moments here, um, and I, I gotta ask, this has nothing to relate to it. You an Aquarius? No, I'm an Aries, Pisces cusp. Okay, my 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 partner's that. I, I'm an Aquarius. Uh, I'm a Capricorn Aquarius cousin. We is it, it was either the cusp thing or the Aquarius thing. I, I look around for it, mm-hmm. and um, I, I share a birthday with another great Philadelphian, seventies mm-hmm. Philadelphian. Me and Questlove have the same birthday. Oh really? Okay. So whenever I see that January twentieth pop, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, me and Quest. It's like you never met him. <laughs> I know, I know Mayor very well. Mayor very well. So. Here's the rapid fire questions for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll give the same thing I give to everyone. Don't overthink them. They're 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 mm-hmm. all in place. So here's the first one. Um, thinking back, what is the uh first record that you owned? Ooh, yeah. So I'd say it's the first record my family owned that I can remember because I don't recall like what my first purchase uh record was, but um when I was a little kid, Marvin Gaye's "What's Going On" used to give me a headache, and I didn't—I couldn't understand why. Yeah. I remember that when my dad would play it, and I would be like, "Eh," and I remember like I can remember like holding the record, um, and I don't know why, but like there was something about that recording that used to make me uncomfortable as a child. Um, so that's the first album that I really be, remember being consciously aware of even yeah. before like really understanding recorded music. I dig it. What are you currently watching? Like, is there any shows, any movies that you watched recently? You know, I may have seen a post for some folks, they talk about succession. I'm definitely watching that. Uh, it's a lot of things that are out there. And there's a lot of things that I avoid because, you know, there's a, there's a attention real estate conversation that happens. And it's like, I don't have time for that. So what are you currently watching and investing that time in? Mm. 
Mm. Mm. So I too um, find joy in succession. And I would say it's kind of like suburban people watching The Wire. Like it, like like problems that I am not connected to at all in any way, shape, or form. But the writing, the cinematography, mm-hmm. the wardrobe, like there's like levels to the things that aren't like very loud, but are outspoken and su- suggestions. So it is definitely a, a guilty pleasure. Uh, outside of that, I cannot stand scripted TV usually. Um, so like I'm more of uh, a person who's into documentaries. Mm. Recently, I've, um, you know, like Arthur Jotha has a couple films on YouTube that I uh, I think are exceptional. Um, and that's more like, that's not like traditional linear um, film. Um, I'm a bigger book person than I am like a con- content person. Like I remember how books, um, resonate or make me feel more than particularly like contemporary um like scripted content yeah. uh, it it's um it's, it's it just doesn't inspire me anyway but i will shout out raul peck's um kill all the brutes have you seen that that's that's really heavy exterminate all the brutes that's heavy it's like five parts that's 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 deep I mean, I'm I'm over here noting things as we go along. So look, I'll, I'll be reaching back out in the email, like, yeah, man, I watched this. Why? <laughs> uh, so I, I got I got two more. Um, and you know, we were talking about that that experience earlier of what um what Twitter is, right, and what the internet by and large has has kind of become. And you know, I I find myself I try to avoid the news, but I find myself actually getting content from the news now because of the proliferation of like fake news and alternative facts and ba 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 for you what are your like three most reliable sources for information oh, do you do you watch democracy now no Mm-mm. oh so you know i i don't know how long i've been watching democracy now it must be at least six or seven years but democracy now comes on every day at 9 a.m um if you go to democracynow.org you can see it and it's also like through apple tv but just watch democracy now for like seven days right and then go back to mainstream corporate media and you're gonna be like how did i not (laughs) did you know how did i did you see or it'll come like a week or two weeks later um in the mainstream press with a different lens Mm. um other than that recently um i operate in capitalist spaces but I tend to read more leftist literature. So this year I've been making an effort to read like the New Republic, Jacobin, um, more like traditional um, leftist political um, periodicals Mm -hmm. and and journals, because um, I I feel like you get a a deeper analysis from long form than the clickbait of contemporary journalism. That's legit. So this is the the last one, last question I got. Um, and uh, this has been my favorite recently because I'm very interested in like, you know, what the guests do, you know, what, the, what their what their things are. So let's say it's super long day, don't have time to really 
you know, put together that that healthy that meal. But you need something. You need something that hits, mm. but it doesn't have to be healthy. Mm. What is that go to meal for you? Is is there a go to meal? Right now, it's it's sushi. my wife and I'll just order a bunch of sushi. Well, if that's get it, <laughs> and I, I don't even want to go to the spot. I want it at my spot. I've been the opposite. I've, I've been so like, hey man, like my, my partner, she'll say like, hey, let's go get sushi. I was like, nah, man, it's been it's changed so much, man. I got to go to the place. It's an intimate experience. Yes, it's, it's yes. really because they give me a lot of extra sushi because I'm oh. always just there, just getting loose on a volcano roll. Mm. All right, all right. Um, and I can't believe I can, I'm not thinking the right nomenclature. What's it when you go um, omakase? Mm. So um, there's a great omakase in uh, Fishtown, very expensive. Um, but my wife and I will do that like twice a year. I went, we went for omakase in Manhattan like two weeks ago. Um, that's more like the out sushi experience. Uh, for me now. um and if i'm not doing that then just give me a bunch of rolls and let me chill <laughs> i like it well that's it um for for the the interview thank you for indulging me in my my questions this has been uh this has been great this has been fun um and in in these final moments i want to invite and encourage you to uh, share with the listeners where they can follow you um keep up on anything the growth collective related and all of that good stuff websites social media whatever you want to share in these final moments the floor is yours okay so for the growth collective we are at the collectivephl.com um for me personally i can be found at 215-tayyib on twitter um don't follow me on instagram I'm just kidding, but uh, <laughs> more interested on. I'm more interesting on Twitter, probably. Um, uh, I have a project called the Seventh Ward Tribute that um, my good friend and colleague Brittany uh, Coleman is leading. Um, basically, creating a, a, a tribute to the Seventh Ward's history in Philadelphia. Um, I'm on the regenerative leadership team and the board of an organization called. The Guild of Future Architects. Um, it's just um, guildoffuture.org. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm on the board of the Black Star Film Festival, blackstarprojects.org. Um, they have a brilliant Terrence Nads exhibit at the ICA right now uh, in Philadelphia. I highly recommend people check out. Um, I'm working on a film project with my friend Cassie Owens. Um, tentatively titled Philly Jazz Legends about, you know, traditional African-American dance cohorts in Philadelphia. Um, I executive produced a film um, by my good friend, uh, Chantrell Lewis, a few years ago, um, called In Our Mother's Gardens. Um, other than that, yeah, that's about it. And there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Taib Smith from The Growth Collective for coming on to the podcast. And I'm Rob Lee for Taib Smith saying that there's art, culture, and an intersection where entrepreneurship lives. In and around your neck of the woods, you've just got to look for it.